But first, sorry, I just was like, it's not recording, it's not recording, it is. Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 247 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and last week I met the most chilled out baby I think I've ever encountered. I saw the photos. He's adorable. Shout out to M. He's Pup, well lovely. A.K.A. Murray Mouse, A.K.A. Murray Reynolds. Oh, hello Murray. People will know whose baby he is because she used to be on Indeed, our Indeed, the lovely Lucy Reynolds. Lucy. She's popped out a good one. <laughs> well done, that woman. He just wants to wave at people and show people that he knows the sign language for friends. We're friends. He just tells everyone he's friends with them. It's very cute. Can you show me the sign language for friends? I know this won't work for a podcast, but... Okay. Is that Makaton or something? I'm not, I'm not accepting questions at this point, Jen. Okay, I think... <laughs> Is that not someone from in the night garden? I think they use it with like autistic people and children and whatnot, but I think they also use it on... I think that's what baby signing is, isn't it? I think it's Makaton. I think that's what they use. don't know, but I enjoyed it. Whatever it was, I had a lovely time. That's the universal sign for I don't know, Mickey. Well done, you're speaking it already. <laughs> this is great for a podcast. What an excellent new direction to take us in. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and not to give them a free advert, but Vinted. People it's great, use isn't it. it? I hear a lot about vintage. People seem to be obsessed with it. I had a proper clear out. And I have to say, I'm quite a bad offender and I don't like trying clothes on. I don't like changing rooms. So I tend to buy them. And if they weren't that expensive, if the value of them was less than the bus fare to return them, I just think, oh, I know. So-and-so might like them. Maybe I'll give that to my sister or maybe I'll give that to my mum. And then they just hang in my wardrobe, taking up space. And in lockdown, I just couldn't be asked to return anything. So I acquired lots of clothes that I didn't really need or want or indeed ever wear. And so I sold them all and I made £225. Wow. Tasty. How's it different to eBay? I mean, Less you paperwork. do not bid on it. Like you don't have to, eBay asks okay. you like a billion questions about a top that's worth £3.50. Whereas Vinted's like, have you got a photo? Put it on. Brilliant. We've sold it. And you don't have to yeah, sort nice. out the postage. That's all on the buyer yeah. rather than the seller. When someone pays you £35 for a pair of, for example, for a pair of Lucy and Yak Dungarees, you accidentally bought them with long leg and you never sent back, you get £35 as opposed to the chunk that eBay take out of it. Also, wardrobe space. Great. Well, quickly downloads Vinted. Is it an app? <laughs> it is an app. It's, it's an, an app, app. Yeah. yeah. You can do it on your computer if you prefer to be old school like I do and see it on a big screen. I do. <laughs> I do. I'm Jen Offord and on Saturday I was simultaneously embarrassed by and kind of proud of my daughter. Has she started writing sex copy for men's magazines? Because <laughs> that's exactly how my mum felt. Uh, no, we went into a local shop the other day, which is run by a conglomerate of local artists. And we know the people who run it like very well. And we went in there and obviously Lyra was sort of like bounding around. There's quite a lot of pottery and stuff that she could break. Just <laughs> exactly that. So there's quite a lot of herding going on. And then my mum was like, all right, look, I will take her out and you can stay in here and look at the things you want to look at. And she was like, no, you've got to come outside, mummy. And one of the women who's involved in the shop was like, look, let me see if I can distract her with a pop-up book. Anyway, we all ended up outside and a woman was chatting to me about something and Lyra took her hand, started pulling her towards the door and said, I'm putting you back inside now. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, shut the fuck up, the lot of you. I'm done with this shit. I want to go. I'm putting you back inside now. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> 
It's excellent now, Jen, but wait till you're in your dotage and she buys a pen that she puts you in and gets payback. <laughs> Coming up, I talked to Lucy O'Brien, author of new book, Lead Sister, the story of Karen Carpenter, about why the tragedy of Carpenter often overshadows her achievements. I chat to Nikki Green, CEO of the Two Minute Foundation, about how we can all help keep beaches and green spaces clean in just a teeny tiny amount of time. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, we are welcoming back the Six Nations. And in Rated or Dated, better get some extra stakes in, Tilly. Tonight is going to be tense <laughs> as we watch Fuck Guess yeah. Who's Coming to Dinner. But first, waiting lists, women-only spaces, and what the fuck is your problem, York? It's time for the Bush <laughs> Telegraph. Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Somehow keeping a straight face as Michael Gove denounces drugs in public venues fueling antisocial behaviour. Leveling up, Secretary. Coming up, Secretary. More like, am I right? Am I right? Oh, Michael Gove. You funny little man, Michael Gove. Oh, yuck. As I said to you, Mick, although you did... Um, you did have a comeback for this, but uh, I, I genuinely think he made up taking cocaine to make himself seem more like a human being. I don't think there's anything in the world that he could make up that would make him seem more like a normal human being, Jen. Well, well I'm not saying it works. <laughs> okay, well, let's crack on, shall we? As part of the ongoing and developing the NHS is fucked news story, mm. let's talk about waiting time, shall we? So there are two headlines this morning as we record on Monday about the ways in which waiting times are impacting patients. Firstly, in terms of cancer care with patients facing, and I quote, unnecessary appointments, as well as, I also quote, pointless scans or biopsies en route to getting a diagnosis. According to a report led by Evoke Incisive Health, commissioned by AstraZeneca UK, shared with The Times. Okay, surely scans and biopsies are necessary in order to get a diagnosis. And don't you have to rule stuff out before you can accurately make one? Yeah, yes. That's not an unreasonable point to make. In fact, it's a point Mickey made to me this morning to give her (laughs) fair credit. But in some NHS trusts, it seems that doctors are not necessarily cutting to the chase. For example, with suspected lung cancers, where patients might be sent for an initial chest X-ray before a CT scan, when a CT scan on its own can show definitively whether or not a patient actually has lung cancer, something a chest X-ray cannot do. Mm. None of this is helping with NHS cancer waiting times, says the report, which are currently the worst on record with more than half a million patients facing delays to treatments exacerbated by, you guessed it, the pandemic. Big panny D. <sighs> the thing is, obviously that was a big deal, but you do get to a point where you're a bit like, is this just an excuse for everything being shit forever now? We do like to hold on to things in this country, don't we? I don't know if you remember when we won the World Cup, the men won the World Cup back in 1966, <laughs> Jen, and indeed the war. We do like to <laughs> cling on to things from the past. I mean, COVID's still around. A mere three years since the pandemic started. I don't think we're letting go of this one anytime soon. No, probably not. What else are NHS patients waiting for? Organ transplants with around 7,000 people. I feel like I made that too cheerful, like pork markets. Um, (laughs) Pork markets and organ transplants. I don't want you to get those two mixed up. No, they're they're not happy bedfellows, are they? Um, Let's move on. 
So there are currently around 7,000 people on the UK transplant waiting list, according to the NHS Blood and Transplant Service. This is the highest figure in a decade and saw more than 420 people die while waiting for a transplant between 2021 and 2022, and a further 600 were taken off the list after becoming too ill to undergo surgery. The slightly confusing issue here is that despite a change in the law in 2020 whereby organ donation after death became presumed unless someone has proactively opted out as opposed to the other way around, the rate of families giving consent for donations has actually dropped. Wow. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? But the slightly surprising thing about that law, certainly I didn't know about it, although the presumption is now that organs will be donated... If you've neither opted in nor opted out, the final say is with your family. So it's not necessarily enough to just assume that it's all taken care of because the law has changed. Mm. Also, they brought that law in in 2020, where, as just previously discussed, we were all a bit busy, right? Yeah. So I'm going to try and Pollyanna this a bit, because although this is undeniably bad news, it is something we can actually help with. So... If you would like to register your NHS organ donor choices, you can do so at organdonation.nhs.uk forward slash register hyphen to hyphen donate. Or just have a chat with your nearest and dearest about what you'd like to happen after you die. Can I have everything but my eyes? Bit weird about the eyes. Me too. And I did actually see that the law had changed, which made me go and look at my choices because I'm weird about the eyes. I don't think they'd be very much use to you, to be honest, <laughs> unless it was for, like, you know, <laughs> medical research. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, yeah, exactly the same. But also, like, you know, just as we have said on the podcast before, it's generally probably quite a good idea to talk to your nearest and dearest about what you want to happen in general when you die anyway. The less sadmin you can leave for people, the better, for sure. Look, Jen, I don't mean to move from this into a massive boast, but I have never been harassed in my gym. Lucky you. Uh-huh, yeah. Nice one, Mick. Good for you. Why are you telling us this? You might well be thinking. Or, chances are, if you're a gym-goer yourself, you might be thinking, well, I have, and it's horrible. Because apparently, two-thirds of gym-going women have been harassed in mixed-sex gym spaces. Three in ten women have been sexually harassed while working out, and now 31% say they'd feel safer in female-only gyms. So yeah, maybe the reason I've not been made to feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable, (laughs) it's a new word, trying it out, didn't like it, going to carry on with the normal one. The reason I've not been made to feel uncomfortable is because my gym is women only. It certainly curbed any gym intimidation, that is a word, apparently. I might have felt when I first started lifting heavy weights. I am a big fan of women only gyms. But there are people who aren't, and they mainly fall into two camps. Those who see women-only gyms as sexist. If you can just imagine the noise my head makes, slamming into a brick wall repeatedly, I'd be very grateful. And there are those who point out that women are yet again having to take on the labour of removing themselves from unsafe situations, rather than mixed gyms simply cracking down on inappropriate behaviour. I mean, yes... That it's not fair that women have to create their own spaces to feel safe and confident is true, but also the same as it ever was, and at least women's only gyms are a solution. 
That doesn't mean problems in mixed gyms shouldn't be tackled, however. So kudos to Eleanor Smalley. And you'll note that it is, of course, still a woman doing the labour here, Mm -hmm. who is launching a new scheme to improve the safety of women who feel harassed or receive unwanted attention in Nottingham's gyms. Smalley, a former PCSO, is starting the Safer Gym Group, part of Nottinghamshire Police's response to violence against women and girls, which includes creating safer spaces for, well, women and girls. By signing up, gyms will be able to show to customers that they have a zero tolerance to sexual harassment. This will also include a staff training and ensuring that women know where they can go to report incidents and that they will be taken seriously when they do so. Not one to... um to uh, celebrate the actions of the police, generally speaking. But I think Nottinghamshire police are actually doing some, like, all right stuff, aren't they? This is not the first time their name has come up. The name of that force has come up in relation to, like, quite good programmes for women and girls. Yeah, actually doing something instead of just chatting shit. (sighs) The thing is, right, Mick, if men want to have men-only gyms, I don't give a shit, have them. Go for it. I don't want to go to them. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. fine. Yeah. I'm not offended by that. Go ahead and have them and I won't come to them and that's fine by me. You heard it here first, man. Jen isn't bothered about <laughs> what, seeing you deadlift in the same space. <laughs> Mick, would you like some good news? Yes, please, Jen. Uh, now, this is a lovely little ending to Women's History Month, celebrating the first ever women's club football match, which took place on March the 23rd. 1895. The past. The past, Mick, run by the British Ladies Football Club. The North beat the South 7-1. FYI, sounds familiar. Yay, the North. I think it means North London versus South London, possibly. I'm not sure, actually. I'll have to look that up. That's how I interpreted it. And as I say, feels very familiar to me, that kind of territory. It was also Women's Football Weekend, which we're allowed to have because the men are off on international duty. So I'm I'm not talking about it in Jenny Off the Blocks today because I don't don't see that as a huge reason to celebrate, if I'm honest. But anyway, what better way to celebrate than by staging a reenactment of that 1895 game? Bagsy being the North. I'm going to have to talk to my people and they'll get back to your people and see if we let you in. I am... Half Northern, <laughs> don't forget. <laughs> that is precisely what happened this weekend at Alexandra Palace, with Alexandra Park women's football team acting as the LARPers in historic kits and was the brainchild of local resident Jackie Head. Jackie, I love your work. Jackie, I love your work too. Yay, Jackie. Yeah. That initial match, by the way, the 1895 match we're talking about here, was attended by a reported 11,000 fans. <laughs> Yeah, so to put that in context, this season up to January the 21st this year, and this is after the Lionesses' historic Euro victory last summer, the average attendance of a WSL match stands at 6,961, up from 1,898 the season before. It's almost as if that 50-year ban by the FA damaged the women's game, isn't it? Do you think... Just throwing it out there. A little bit, a little bit. Law news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we look at the sex disaggregated stats and facts around disorderly behaviour, but swiftly discard them to declare groups of women the real scourge of cities. 
in an almost laughably sneering, scaremongering mm. article in this week's Sunday Times, brought to my attention by the one and only Jennifer Offord, it's Thanks. claimed that, and this is the fucking headline, <laughs> hen party hordes strike fear into York. That's right. Groups of pissed up women in sashes celebrating Brenda's last night of freedom are holding an entire city to ransom. It's basically Game of Thrones with tequila shots. Or at least that's what this hit piece on women drinking would have you believe. Now then, I'm not saying that hen parties can't get a bit rowdy and that a big group of drunken Larry women isn't sometimes a bit much. I've thought that when I've been one of the drunken Larry women in question. So I can absolutely see it might get on your tits when you're trying to enjoy a quiet afternoon in one of the UK's, quote, ancient cities famed for its gothic cathedral, medieval walls, sedate tea rooms and market stalls. But come on, it's hardly a state of emergency, <laughs> or is it? I used to work at a watch shop on Coney Street, retailer Mark Powell tells the Sunday Times. And on Saturdays, we would have to lower our trading targets because we knew that people wouldn't go shopping when the street was full of drunk people. Someone would come in with their £2,000 Rolex to be fixed and you wouldn't be able to have a conversation with the customer because of the noise people were making outside. Will nobody think of the <laughs> Rolex owners? <laughs> what a twat. <laughs> Did I make him sound like a twat? Oh, my bad. Powell is one of two men interviewed for the piece. The other, who described the hen parties passing his shop as quite vulgar, asked not to be named. They're killing our capitalism, shout the shop owners, uh, not the pub, bar and club owners like, while ignoring the huge out-of-town retail parks with much easier parking. The piece is illustrated with candid photos of women on Hindus, and while some of their outfits in what's clearly chilly weather up north means I fear for their kidneys, they just look like they're having a nice time. But why can't they be silent and well-behaved like the stags? I hear <laughs> absolutely no one ask. And yet, while there are more Hindus that take place in York than stag parties, it's telling that stags don't even get a mention mm. until paragraph seven. And yeah, I fucking counted. Can I ask a question at that stage? Yes. Where do the football fans rank in this like hierarchy of hate and terror? It's like any mention of them? Absolutely no mention of them at all, Jen. They're fine, I'm sure. They they, they never cause any problems. No, I, I wouldn't have thought so. Anyway, you can imagine how shocked I was when I delved into a bit of a tangent on this to discover that women are twice as likely as men to receive harsher sentences for assault offences when alcohol is a contributory factor. Women are judged differently to men. Well, paint me green and call me Norma, who'd have thunk it? Look, I have been guilty of it in the past, but I know drunken behaviour ain't pretty. And, I, I, you know, I guess women are always supposed to be pretty, eh? It is why we exist. And we wouldn't ever want to go against traditional notions of womanhood, would we? Anyway, I had a little nose at an FOI about criminal activity on stags and hens disclosed by North Yorkshire Police at the end of last year. And that sex disaggregation is going to surprise none of our listeners. Not one of you. Yeah, it's not it's not the hens getting into criminal trouble there. But, you know, women drinking and having a nice time. That's the real crime here. Another shot, Jen? I'd, you know, I have seen hen and indeed more stag parties before and thought, I wouldn't fucking like to get involved with any of you lot. Mm -hmm. But, like, also, at the same time, the majority of hen parties I've been on, like, literally 
we've like fucking learned how to get like a bunch of people and lift the lightest person in the dirty dancing move like you know it's just not that's <laughs> like it's not that violent is it it's you know it's mostly just like fucking formation dancing isn't it come on it's loud formation dancing absolutely there's a lot of screaming yeah. and that you know that is a pitch that might annoy people but is it really as much of a problem as they're stating well, if you're a Rolex owner, maybe you should at me and see what I have to say about it. <laughs> I'm joined by Nikki Green, CEO of the Two Minute Foundation. Hello, Nikki. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I heard about your organisation because a friend of mine does the Two Minute Cleanup. Nikki, can you tell us a little bit about the Two Minute Foundation, first of all, for anyone who's not aware of what you guys do? Yeah, sure. So we are the Two Minute Foundation. We are a national environmental and social action charity. We started thanks to a hashtag that was sent out in 2014. And that hashtag was Two Minute Beach Clean. That hashtag snowballed into a social media movement. We've had hashtags being sent from Hawaii, Australia, obviously thousands sent from the UK. And with that hashtag, it was very nebulous. You know, we needed something tangible. So we created our A-frame stations, which is like a sandwich board with a litter picker, litter picker box and a bag slot where people can actually have a tool and effectively pick up in locations. We've got 1,100, I think, now across the UK. We have them all around the beaches, around the coastline, and we also have them inland as well. So with the two minute beach clean hashtag, we then created a campaign inland and upstream called two minute litter pick. So we inspire people to pick up litter first and foremost for two minutes or more. But it's sort of about taking part in small acts that lead into a greater impact. Yeah. So I found out about you because of my friend. I spend like half my time in Essex on the coast. And so I was following her social media account and I saw what she was doing. And I thought, this is interesting. I wonder if... This is like her thing or a bigger thing. And so I sort of mm -hmm. looked into it. And of course, it is a bigger thing. And also just should say, well done, Hayley. You're a good person. Well done. <laughs> you know, she goes out there every day and she's walking her dog. Well, that's a really nice thing to do, isn't it? And then I think to myself, well, I'll go, I'll do it. I'll do it. Because like, that's, that's not a big ask. Two minutes. And then if everyone does mm -hmm. two minutes, then that's the whole point, right? Like lovely stuff. No more litter on the beach, right? And yet, somehow, I have never quite managed to find... <laughs> those two minutes so can you give me like a quick sales pitch on how easy it actually is to find two minutes okay well here's my two minutes I mean I'm showing you now for anyone listening I did my two minute beach clean this morning when I walked the dog um you can do your litter two minute litter pick whenever you go and visit your park or a green space when you're outside enjoying nature if you look down you will come across some litter so if you go on my local beach, I went on my local beach this morning, I looked down and all I could see was micros at my feet. So this is what I picked up here. So there's rope, there's microplastics, there's bits of bucket that's broken up, remnants of a dog ball, fishing gear. And that was just two minutes in one, one metre square patch. That beach is 800 metres long and there are around about 1,500 beaches across the UK coastline. So... If everybody did two minutes, it would make such a huge difference because two minutes is 
actually nothing. Our concept is about just doing it whenever you can and whenever you're out and about. It's just so easy. And that's why it's taken off. But I think it's that positivity element as well. It makes you feel really good going outside. You know, you're soaking up that sunshine. You've got the the feel-good hormones going on. You've got, you know, the oxytocin and serotonin and endorphins. It's great, you know, to connect with other like-minded people and to connect communities as well. That's what we've been good at is connecting communities and, yeah, just staying positive during this climate crisis because there's a lot of eco-anxiety and climate anxiety prevalent at the moment. So if your beach is 800 metres and you go and you clear one square metre of it and you pick up all the little bits and bobs that you find and you get rid of them and say you do it for 800 days, say no one else ever goes on the beach or the people that go on the beach learn that they need to sort of change their behaviour or is it like a constant battle against the crap that's also in the sea? Yeah, I mean, first of all, that's an amazing challenge. Maybe I need to speak to the marketing team about that. (laughs) but it's constantly comes in with the tide you know these microplastics come into our beach every single day i'll go down there tomorrow and there'll be more in that patch that picked up it's a huge problem and what is microplastic exactly so microplastics are just plastic so this is a a bucket part of a bucket will just get smashed up in the tides be judged up from the bottom of the ocean and it will eventually be light enough to float on the top of the ocean and then it just comes in with the light winds into the shoreline and that's what my plastics are there's loads and loads of tiny little bits of plastic that break up they all get broken up and into smaller and smaller pieces that go on to harm wildlife so it's really important that we spend time picking up the micros really great tip for your friend is i mean she probably does this already is to take a sieve with her when she beach cleans because that's a really great way to effectively pick up microplastics pick them up with a sieve and then you go to a rock pool and give it a shake and then they all come out and you chuck them in your bag you know because she posts a little picture most days when she does it and she finds some really really random stuff on the beach quite a lot of toys quite a lot of quite yeah. creepy toys actually especially after they've been battered around a little bit by the sea what's the weirdest thing you've found it's not what i found it's actually one of my colleagues found a water gun in the shape of a penis <laughs> <laughs> that is revolting lots of figurines army figurines that i found random doll's heads toothbrushes a bath. A whole bath know. or like a small bath? Uh, bits of a bath. Bits of a bath. Yeah. yeah. So people really are throwing like anything and everything away. Listeners will probably be a little bit aware of, because it's been in the news quite a lot over the last couple of years, because the man, the myth, the legend, Sir David Attenborough, obviously has <sighs> done a lot of work around this. He talks a lot about the, <laughs> uh, the issue of plastic in the ocean. Why is this such a big deal? Like, What do we need to know about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's ruining the ecosystems. You know, the ocean is bringing with wildlife and biodiversity and plastics, like I mentioned, are breaking up and they're kind of ruining those habitats. The thing is as well with plastics in the ocean is that it leaches chemicals when it's in the ocean, so it leaches into the ocean. The ocean is our biggest ally against combating climate change. You know, every second breath that we take is thanks to the ocean and the phytoplankton that photosynthesizes and gives us oxygen. So it's really important to protect that. And also the fact that plastic is made from oil and obviously oil is fossil fuel. So from the moment that oil is extracted from the ground, 
It then gets processed into plastic pellet. It gets then made into a plastic item. Then we use it mostly only once and then get, gets discarded all through its life cycle. Plastics are harming the environment. That's why it's really important to try to think about how we use plastics and have a different relationship to them. There are some plastics that we need in this world, but it's the single-use plastics and the unnecessary plastics that none of us need in our life. We can get rid of a lot of plastics in our home right now, you know, um, and I think that's why litter picking, you know, it's the gateway drug to a greener and healthier, more sustainable lifestyle because you start connecting the dots with what you're picking up and you go home and you sort of think, oh man, I, maybe I don't need to buy so many packets of crisps for my kids or, you know, maybe I need to think about my choices at home and my choices as a consumer. Do I need to be supporting these big corporations where I keep picking up the same bottle from the beach every single day? Beach cleaning is the first thing that you do. And we're all about trying to stay positive during this the climate crisis and navigating ourselves through it. We're very big on pushing our two-minute solution campaign at the moment, where you think about all the different alternatives that there are and the simple swaps that you can make. I used to be a civil servant before I was a journalist, and I used to work at DEFRA, which is the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And one of the things that we always had in terms of like changing people's behaviour, and particularly when you get into a situation like, you know, cost of living crisis etc etc is that to a lot of people the environment is a nice to have not need to have it's something that we very much take for granted so if you're talking about like oh okay in an ideal world you'd buy a I don't know say you're buying a tumble dryer you're going to buy a tumble dryer with a slightly better energy efficiency rating but that tumble dryer is like Mm. 100 quid more expensive so actually Mm. you're going to sack it off buy the cheaper one do you think that is an issue with environmental policy that it is kind of seen as in some ways like the preserve of the middle classes or or the rich or that actually they can afford to make those lifestyle changes and how do you think we change opinions like this isn't a nice to have this is very much a need to have how do we make people understand that this is you know we're, we're at quite a critical point now okay so obviously it's great that more and more coffee shops have brought in the you know get 20p off if you bring your reusable coffee cup in which is great we've just done a campaign uh no coffee no cup campaign at the two minute foundation where we sort of inspired people to remember their coffee cups um so that's great that's a great incentive you've got the deposit return scheme that's just come about um in scotland i think that's um happening in august and then the rest of the uk hopefully by 2025 it's quite a way off but you know we're going to have deposit return schemes where you get an incentive back so and obviously, you have to play, pay for plastic bags, don't you, at the checkout now. So I think it's these are great changes, but obviously we need to do more. There needs to be more awareness raising. But things are slowly happening, thanks to the good work of the charities in the space, influencing government and policy. You know, the microbead ban, which was brilliant, 2018, that happened. And the plastic packaging tax came into force in April this year. There's also the EPR scheme, which is the, the extended producer responsibility scheme, where that shifts the tax from the consumer to the corporate um, at the post-consumer stage. So things are happening, things are moving, and there's some really great organisations out there that are working together with the government to help you know, bring in more policies and effect change. 
what about Brexit? Because obviously we're having sort of, you know, bonfire of the of the regulations. Is that having any kind yeah. of impact on, on what's going on? Because obviously we're bound by quite a lot of European directives on, on yeah. various things. Does that mean that it's going to be a free-for-all again? Or, or do you think politicians are actually thinking about this stuff now? Are they actually care enough about it maybe to keep some of it in place? Yeah, there is work going on. I mean, the Environment Act actually introduced the EPR scheme that I just mentioned. These evolving new policies and regulatory measures are are sort of ongoing. A lot of it is falling to brilliant organisations such as yourself. Do we need more? Definitely, we need more um, awareness raising. and We need to get more people doing two minutes. It's just trying to get to those people that it's just not part of their psyche to think about protecting the planet. There needs to be so much more done in terms of advertising on the TV. Remember when we were kids, you know, the Keep Britain Tidy advert, mm. Green Cross Code adverts. They do change your mindset and we need more of that. So, yeah, absolutely. More needs to be done. Yeah, so those Keep Britain Tidy adverts, I really do remember those. And I do remember <laughs> there was a time when I was very little where dropping litter was like just what people did. It was totally socially acceptable to do that. And I really feel like the tables have turned and that is not the case. It's a bit like dog poo. Yeah. Like I remember when there used to be dog poo everywhere and the tables yeah. really turned. Like that became something yeah. that you, you didn't do. Although I do see that going back a little bit the other way now in, in some places. <laughs> do you think that has maintained or have we seen that slip away over time? Yeah, interesting point because there's a massive problem on the beaches with people litter and sea litter. So we talked about the sea litter mm. sea litter that gets washed in, but it's the people litter. I think people just sort of expect some other person to pick up the litter behind them. But yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem. And I think what really got me was in lockdown. Um, you know, I live on the North Devon coast and as soon as that date came about where everyone could go outside Mm. people came to where we live and you know on the moors as well and inland there's beautiful green and blue spaces and they absolutely trashed them they went to these blue and green spaces to sort of seek solace and admire the beauty but then they completely trashed it so it's changing that mindset from a very young age which is why we've set up our two-minute beach school you know we want to try to educate children and and more and more people about those detrimental effects that plastics and litter has on the environment it's crazy to think that people are still lobbing out a certain uh, a fast food company's cups out their windows still on the motorway you know we see it not just on the motorway in in the countryside people just chuck stuff out of their car windows that's a huge problem because then those plastics eventually find their way into the water course through drains or they blow into canals or rivers and it all ends up in the ocean and we just need to kind of mitigate that it is funny isn't it because i kind of like you you look at the state of the world at the moment the state of the uk and you think like you know we're living in a situation whereby there aren't enough nurses there aren't enough ambulances to come and get you if you've had a heart attack so like what I, it kind of baffles me a little bit that people think there would be like this person who comes along and picks up their stuff that they've left on the beach like where do they think that person is coming from but is that kind yeah. of the key issue there that actually it is vitally important that this doesn't happen and we're not treating it with with the seriousness that it deserves yeah absolutely and it does come down to that educational piece but also I guess it comes down to educating people that live in a city so for example in London you know you do get street cleaners you do get people picking up litter every single evening anything that 
ends up in the drains, you know, will eventually lead into into the sea. You know, there's a massive problem with cigarette butts as well. I mean, we just did a, a litter pick in central London with a corporate, actually. And I think within the first 20 minutes, they picked up 2,000 cigarette butts. They cause a lot of damage to the environment around them and they're microplastics. They do not um, biodegrade, guys. They do not. No, they don't. They're not just paper. It's just about that that educational piece about people that live inland because it's their problem. It's everybody's problem. Plastic in the oceans. It's Everything's interconnected. You know, we all need to understand this. On that note around education anyone listening to this who's been inspired today and 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 rightly thought do you know what two minutes is is not a big ask i'm going to go and sort this out and nikki i promise you i'm going to go and do my two minute beach clean maybe even this afternoon i am going to do it because the two minutes is not long at all you know of your day to give up if you happen to be walking along the beach anyway which often i am or if you don't live by the sea and you live, you know, you're taking your dog for a walk in the park, you know, there are plenty of opportunities. Do you like to know about people doing this? Is it you want them to share yeah. this on social media with the hashtag? Absolutely. And that's what that's what happened at the beginning. You know, people were picking up for two minutes or more, taking a snap with their phone and uploading it to Instagram using the hashtag. And we were there. We could see the litter being picked up in front of our eyes. You know, we've had hundreds and hundreds of hashtags over the years. In fact, I think it's around about 200,000 hashtags to date that have been used. And if you add all of that together, I think we kind of did the math a couple of months ago, and it's amounted to around about 400 tonnes. You know, if every two minutes is around about two kilograms, that's, that's a lot of litter removed from our green and blue spaces. But yeah, you just upload your picture, follow us on socials at Two Minute HQ, go on our website, download some free resources, take a look at our YouTube channel, get yourself educated about plastics in the oceans. And the other thing that you do, you mentioned it before, is you do sort of corporate days for people. So maybe you, I don't know, you work for someone who does such things, corporate days, or you run a small business yourself and you want to have a corporate day with your employees. They can get in touch with you to arrange something something with you, right? Absolutely. They can email info at twominute.org or again, just go on our website, tells you what to do and what you can download. We can come into your offices and we can do a talk. We can do a free lunchtime learning session to talk about plastics that we find on the beach. And we, you know, it's all about the well-being of the workforce as well with our corporate offering. Everyone sort of talks about the supply chain, et cetera, and auditing. But we're more about like, you know, the hearts and minds really of your workforce. It's about inspiring them. The, you know, two minutes is nothing. But if they do it, there's 3,000 people in the company. It really does make quite an impact. That's something that the company can then shout about and they'll go back home and talk about it, you know, and start talking about two minutes at dinner table. Who knows? Where can we follow you guys on social media? So the handle is at two minute HQ. We are on Twitter, Insta, Facebook. We're about to launch on TikTok over the next few weeks, which is quite exciting. Very modern. (laughs) Where can we find you? Are you on Twitter? Yes, I am. I'm Nikki two minute HQ. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by... 
Lucy O'Brien, writer and broadcaster whose work focuses on women in music. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Lucy. Well, thank you for asking me. It's lovely to be on your podcast. I have been enjoying your book, Lead Sister, the story of Karen Carpenter. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk, because this isn't your first rodeo. You've written books about Dusty Springfield, about Madonna, Annie Lennox, and you co-wrote a book with Skin. Yes. What makes a woman rise above the hoi polloi and sort of gain the the status of icon in the music industry? That's a very good question. Having written the various biographies, having also written She Bop, which is a history of women in popular music and, and kind of interviewed... I mean, in the end, over over time, I interviewed about 250 women, in, you know, both as performers and behind the scenes. And the main thing I felt from all of them, they came from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different eras. The main quality that I saw was single-mindedness because music industry is such a distracting force and the way that it operates is to gradually whittle away a woman's power so that as she goes through the system of particularly the major label system she'll have A&R say what you want to do is this Mm -hmm. then she'll go into the marketing department once she's got her record and they'll be like what you want to do is this and there'll be all sorts of people giving advice, inverted commas, and pushing pushing the artist one way and then another way, until unless she has an extremely strong, single-minded sense of herself and where she's heading, she's going to feel undermined, she's going to feel distracted, it's going to affect her confidence, and she's going to start compromising on her choices. So those were the things that I noticed. So when it came to writing about Karen Carpenter, you know, I was interested in her story because I thought there's absolutely no way a young woman like her gets to the top of the music industry in the 1970s by being, A, a submissive female, you know, just being dictated to by her brother in the record company. And also, she's someone that will know the business and she'll know how to navigate her way through and she'll have an incredible talent on top of that so that's what I wanted to uncover that real Mm. Karen Carpenter behind that your book opens with you talking about the first time you heard the Carpenters and I was thinking about the first time I heard the Carpenters and without going into back in the day but you know back in the day unless it was in the charts or your parents liked it you know you didn't actually really encounter a lot of music I'm pretty certain the first time I encountered the Carpenters was in the film Parenthood. So I would have been, I would say, 15, something like that. And Rick Moranis bursts in to a classroom and starts singing close to you incredibly badly. And actually singing the Carpenters badly is quite a comedy staple. And and it's interesting because I think it says something about her voice because mm. it's a, it was deeper than I think people actually pitch themselves with, but she did have the ability yeah. to go higher. So actually it is stuff that yeah. people struggle to sing. Can, can you tell us a little bit about why you think her voice was unique? Yes, she did have a very deep voice, but at the same time she had a multi-octave range, so she could sing. I mean, this was something that really surprised me when I was um, researching the book. Her former boyfriend, Tom Barler, the record producer, he said that she sat in the car one day and she sang along to... Minnie Ripperton, and she sang like really, really incredibly mm. high register as well, perfectly well. But she said to him that I've studied 
female singers and I can see that the ones that really make it have a kind of deep, rich inflection to their voice. She said the money's in the basement. (laughs) But in terms of her singing, she was naturally gifted with perfect pitch and an amazing kind of honey-toned voice. But she also had an excellent teacher in Frank Pooler who led the choir at Cal State where she went to university. And he doesn't get as much credit as he should do, but he was so influential in kind of that vocal training, not just with her, but with Richard as well. And those very unique vowel sounds and the way that they sang and the way they layered their harmonies. You know, a lot of that was incubated really there when they were very young as students at at Cal State. I know Paul McCartney said to him she had the finest voice. I mean, as a massive Sam Cooke fan, I I can't agree with that. But yes, it is a really amazing voice. I I don't really know how to... describe it other than you say yeah the pitch it's very clean isn't it it's really smooth going back to the first time I encountered her almost immediately the conversation about the carpenters I did the equivalent of googling Karen Carpenter which was asking my mum and almost immediately the first thing that came up was she died of anorexia yeah do you think the tragedy is at risk of overwhelming the art of Karen Carpenter Yes, in a word. And I felt it also overwhelmed her story and it overwhelmed how we understood her, how she was represented. For a long time, that was the dominant narrative. I just felt that there was a much stronger woman in there that I wanted to find. And I felt that for many years, people had spoken for her, particularly her brother, Richard. Who she was and her sound was very curated. And I thought, I just want to really bring her voice out and let it emerge and be heard. It's a bit like I had this this image in my head, you know, sometimes in documentaries where they have historical photos, really old photos, they 3D them. So Mm. you get a sense of someone's real physicality and life. And that's what I was attempting to do with this book. Through lots of fresh interviews, people who knew her work with her former boyfriends, friends, but also kind of digging around, doing quite a lot of archive work, particularly, you know, radio is such an amazing medium. And I found these really kind of obscure radio interviews they'd done maybe in like 1969 or the early 70s when they just started out, you know, for and it might have been for Montreal Radio or, or some small little radio station in L.A. And finding Karen talking so much more animatedly and and talking enthusiastically about her interests, her music. A lovely story, for instance, she's talking about Frank Pooler and how he led the choir, and and, and she said it was like we were one voice. And she enthused about a very experimental piece that they'd done, which was kind of set around the Holocaust. And she she said that she found that so exciting, just being experimental and really pushing her art. And I thought that was so interesting because we've kind of got so used to thinking of the Carpenters as easy listening and very Mm. M.O.R. And yet there was this whole other quite extreme side to her. Yeah, we can get onto the drumming in a bit because the drumming Mm. is fascinating. Mm. But but sticking with the pressure on her, there is a fascinating, there's a couple of really fascinating quotes that I want to bring up. The first one, actually, there's a brilliant quote in your book where somebody says, drummers are much like hockey goalies in that only really other people who do that understand them. And I actually sent that to a friend of mine who is both a drummer 
and a hockey goalie and he just said one word back that said true um, <laughs> yes it's a really interesting thing about how women who have a musical instrument tend to fare a bit better psychologically with the pressures of fame than women who are just out there singing as the front woman. I mean, and I can understand it totally because although a guitar doesn't hide you, it, it kind of does. And it's actually when she stopped with the drumming that the sort of the real pressure on her to look a certain way really started yes. to, to come through. I found that totally fascinating. My feeling about that was that she was essentially de-skilled as an instrumentalist. Mm-hmm. I was surprised when, when I was doing the research how much she loved and was passionate about the drums. Because I, I kind of, a lot of us thought, oh, well, she kind of played the drums a bit, but she was mainly a singer. And that side of her was trivialised, almost seen as a bit of a, of a novelty. But then as I looked into it, and the more I talked to people, the more I thought, no, she was a serious drummer. She took great pride in that. Right from when she was a teenager and she was playing in the high school marching band and she kind of made sure she was right up there mm. at the front. And I also think she had a lot emotionally invested in it because, again, the more I looked into her family moved from the from the East Coast, from Connecticut, over to L.A. when she was 12, 13 years old, which is really um, a very difficult time yeah. for a young teenage mm. woman, transplanted, you know, yeah. moved thousands of miles away, away from her friendship group. And someone like Karen, who kind of had that, vulnerability really um, in in terms of her mental health this was not good <laughs> so her grades started to slip she was an A grade student her grades slipped she was keen on sports and then suddenly she wasn't doing sports anymore and you can clearly see that there was some distress but then she finds drumming and that's what makes her happy yeah and she's really comfortable with that she's really comfortable with drumming and singing and in the early records she's doing most of the drumming and on tour she's doing most of the drumming and then you know as the carpenters become the the hits kind of rack up and there's much more pressure on the band to become this money making machine it's like let's let's shove her out front you know you need to let go of the drums now, Karen. Yeah. As if it's just, oh, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll just put the drums aside when this is this instrument is her primary way of expressing herself, really. There was a quote where she said something along the lines of when she was younger and she drummed, she was both safe and lost. That was the feeling that yeah. it gave her when she was out doing the drumming in the, yeah. I love I, that quote. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. But, I mean, drummers don't get a lot of respect, full stop. A bit more now, maybe, you know, but they they don't, you know. Cam Ringo Starr drum (laughs) is probably one of the longest-running disputes in in music. But even more so when it's a woman. In fact, just this week, Cam Meg White drum has been quite the conversation on Twitter. It's been incredible, hasn't it? Yes, And and I think that's such prejudice. It was so interesting reading a lot of the reviews around the carpenters and like when she was doing a lot of drumming and singing and and it was like lots of use of the phrase unladylike and 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 this real anxiety about she's straddling the drums this is so unbecoming and 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 the other thing that was used phrase that was used a lot is she's hiding behind the drums see i i don't think it's possible 
I think those two things are contradictory. It's impossible to hide behind an instrument that you need to be expressing yourself in a way that's really loud yeah. and really obvious yeah. <laughs> and kind of driving the band, literally driving the band. You know, you're the, you're the kind of engine room of the band. So go back to the pressures of fame and anorexia. Reading this, it was quite easy for me to look and think, oh, you know, nothing changes. And perhaps we can talk because that's mm. maybe negative because perhaps things have changed more recently. Mm. But it was it was very easy to draw comparisons to what's happened to other women. And I think probably the most obvious to me seemed to be Amy Winehouse. Yes. Wanting to portray her as fragile in the media, but at the same point, tearing her down. So... Yes. Yes. Do you think that Karen Carpenter's story is maybe more universal than we think it is in the world of music? In a word, yes. There's been a fair bit of research into female singers particularly and uh, the rate of eating disorders affecting female performers. I think, number one, it's very exposing to be up there on stage. Uh, There's a lot of judgment, not just on the way that they're singing, but also the way that they look. Within the music industry, anyway, there is this... I was talking earlier about the process. Any female artist signed to a major label has to go through that whole image Mm. process as part of the marketing. There's an inordinate amount of pressure to sell herself sexually. So... That and and to look incredibly slim and be like a clothes hanger for for clothes. Mm. So I think all those things combined add up to a very difficult situation for a lot of female artists and and they can be prone to anorexia, bulimia. In in Amy Winehouse's case, it was bulimia. And and, and I think, I do actually think bulimia was really at the the source of a lot of her problems. We've had artists like Taylor Swift speak about it really openly, that the more there was stress and pressure on her, Mm. the more she had disordered eating. She was lucky in that she was born and she's working nowadays because there's a lot more treatment available Mm. and there's a lot more ways to intervene and and get really good help. But, you know, back in the 1970s, Karen was kind of struggling through on her own. The advice that she was given by another artist who had managed to successfully kick uh, anorexia was you can't do your job and recover from anorexia at the yes, same time yes. yeah that's really brutal all of that said I do feel like looking at sort of the new generation of, of mm. artists you know Billie Eilish for example she yes. really seems to yeah. have it all together is she unique or are things getting better very very slowly I'm always an optimist and I and I think that's partly why I approached the book in the way that I did and that I thought I, I want to deal with the uh, anorexia and and discuss that in the light of all the latest research that, that we have and the awareness that we have. But at the same time, I really want to celebrate Karen's achievements and also find, really bring out that pioneering woman that I always felt was there. Karen's death was a real watershed moment for the music industry in that the collective shock and disbelief was immense and it kind of helped to continue or start a conversation about eating disorders and about anorexia particularly. And something that I I did feel, you know, as I was looking at her story and Amy Winehouse's, and I know people who've worked with both artists, that there is a real feeling of failure in the music industry, we failed, we failed. 
and a sense of people really looking at it and trying to learn from it. So I think there has been, it's gradual, but I think the change is happening and it's happening because those two deaths, I think we realise now, could have been avoided with with the right support, Mm. with the right um, medical intervention, therapy, joined up thinking. And I do see now that there's more awareness with artist careers. Like I teach in music management at University of West London and something I have noticed is that record companies now at least have policies in place for mental health and their artists and mental health and well-being. And kind of built into that is an awareness that you can't keep pushing, pushing, pushing. If artists are going through a phase where they are in trouble or they're, they're vulnerable, then it's understood right, you need to give them some time out. Mm. You need to give them some time out. You, and, and, you know, in, in Amy's case and in Karen's case, they didn't have time out. And that's why it became so chronic for, for both of them. They're so young, so unbelievably young. I mean, Karen Carpenter was 32. I, and, you know, when yeah. someone told me that when I was, like I say, when I was 15, and now I'm looking at 50, you think, Jesus 32 and Amy Winehouse was even younger wasn't she she was 27 I think yeah yes so much as I love this and everyone should definitely read it I also would like to know have you got your eye on someone else who's next is there another person that you're lining up to to write about well there's two things I've got kind of bubbling well three things really (laughs) I'm working with um, an all-female band called the Liver Birds who are contemporaries of the Beatles there's two surviving members, Mary and Sylvia, and um, I'm co-writing their memoir with them. Oh, excellent. That will be out next year. And I'm doing my own memoir. I won't say any more than it's a, kind of about how music and feminism saved me. Excellent. So I'll just put that one out there. Get your diary out. We'll get, um, we'll get you back to talk about that one. You know, in terms of... Oh, gosh. Do you know what? I would love to do a biography of Lana Del Rey. I love her music. I think she's a really interesting character. She doesn't play the game. She's a real free thinker. She's very imaginative. Yeah, I mean that's that's someone I'd be if if I if I could choose my next kind of biography, then then I would I'd be up for that. Excellent, and you can come on and talk about any of those when they're out. Thank you. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we hand the patriarchy the wooden spoon as we discuss all things women's sport. A very wet and windy Jenny Off The Blocks this week. Apologies if you can hear the weather, which is currently weathering. Anyway, whoop whoop, welcome back women's rugby. I mean, it hadn't gone anywhere, but it's great to have another big tournament on our telly and or internet. All of the Women's Six Nations is available to watch either on BBC Two or the iPlayer as well as on the BBC Sport website and app this time around. Last time we were talking about big international fixtures was around the World Cup back in November last year when England lost in the final to New Zealand by the narrowest of margins. A really heartbreaking outcome for them but a huge tournament in terms of promotion of the women's game and it really did garner press attention and interest the likes of which we've not seen for a while if indeed ever before. All of the teams competing in this year's Six Nations 
Bar Island took part in that World Cup. France finished third. They knocked Italy out in the quarterfinals. Wales were comprehensively whooped by New Zealand in the quarters, while Scotland failed to progress beyond the group stage. The first round of results of the Six Nations are uh, exactly what you'd expect on that basis. Wales beat Ireland 31-5, England beat Scotland 58-7 and France beat Italy 22-12. But, you know, the night is young. And I do wonder if we might see a bit more competition between England and France this time. England, who have won 13 times in the 20-year history of the tournament. France, who've won six times. Ireland are the only others who've had a look-in in 2013 and 2015 when they won, and I do not fancy their chances this time. A quick nod of the head to Sarah Hunter, England's most capped player, male or female, and the most capped women's international in the world, who made her 141st and final appearance for the Red Roses in that victory over Scotland, and in her home city of Newcastle at Kingston Park. What a fitting way for the face of women's rugby in this country, anyway, to bow out. She said, we want to win tournaments, but sport is more than that, especially with where women's sport is now. It's about the legacy we want to leave and how, as individuals, we can drive that to inspire the next generation. We've just scratched the surface of the women's game, she added. I'll hand the baton onto this group of Red Roses and they'll have a responsibility to move the game forward. I always think there is something quite bittersweet about these retirements of such key players like Hunter or in women's football, Jill Scott, for example. Women who haven't quite benefited from the spoils they could have had, but have paved the way so that the generation coming up behind them will do. Congratulations to Sarah on an incredible career and we look forward to whatever she does next. Now... Here is an absolutely mad thing I just discovered this week. In 125 years of Wimbledon, there has never been a female referee. What the actual fuck? This is about to change with the introduction of, I'll repeat it so you'll hear, Wimbledon's first ever female referee. Okay, it's not actually as shocking as it sounds. A referee is not the same as an umpire. A referee in tennis is actually the top official at the tournament. Kind of like the big dog umpire, if you will. Denise Parnell, who made one appearance at Wimbledon as a player in the 1980s, will step into the shoes of Jerry Armstrong, who's filled that role since 2020 after his final championship this summer. But let's not forget that the first ever female umpire at a Wimbledon men's singles final only happened in 2021, with Croatian Maria Cicek overseeing Novak Djokovic versus Matteo Berrettini. A very strange article for The Telegraph notes, without offering an opinion about whether or not this is a good thing, but I'll let you judge the language, a women's takeover of the tournament thanks to the appointment of highly qualified women Sally Bolton as the first female chief exec back in 2020 and Debbie Jevons as the next chair. That is a lot of ladies. Surely all these ladies have played a part in the, and this is a direct quote, once classically white and male dominated enclave once, once decision to allow coloured underwear in this summer's championship, he ponders. Lovely stuff. I think that's a quality 15 love. We're not quite at game, set and match stage yet, are we? That's all for me this week. I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film did we watch that, had it been written by Northerners, would have been called... Eee, would you look who's come for this tea? <laughs> this week, 
we watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, a romantic comedy drama about an interracial relationship which arrived in cinemas in the UK this month in 1968, a few months after it was released in the US. And for a bit of historical context, the US release came a few months after the famous Loving v. Virginia ruling, which made interracial marriage legal in all states of America. If you're interested in that, there's a very good film called Loving, starring Ruth Negger, Seek It Out. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was written by British screenwriter William Rose, who it's believed drew inspiration from the story of Ruth Williams, a white British woman who married African aristocrat Cozy Saretsi Karma in the 1940s and went on to become the first lady of Botswana. If you're interested in that, <laughs> there's a good film called A United Kingdom, starring Rosamund Pike. Have you seen that? No. No. Seek it out. While we're on it, had either of you watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner before? No, no. I had not. <laughs> okay. This one was produced and directed by Stanley Kramer, who was famous for classic Western High Noon, as well as a number of message movies, including <laughs> The Defiant Ones, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, On the Beach, and Inherit the Wind. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was the ninth and final pairing of bona fide, albeit secret, Hollywood power couple Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Tracy was very ill during filming and died 17 days after it wrapped. Thus, Hepburn said she was never able to watch the film. It was one of three films made by Sidney Poitier, released in 1967, the other two being To Sail With Love and In the Heat of the Night. And the latter, which is a real banger, pipped Guess Who's Coming to Dinner to the Best Film Oscar. Poitier himself, of course, had become the first black man to win the Best Actor Oscar in 1964. Poitier was apparently so awestruck by Hepburn and Tracy that he repeatedly fluffed his lines, and so often the bits where the pair are not on screen were filmed without them, with Poitier addressing empty chairs. Best Film was one of ten Oscar nominations received by Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and it won two, Best Actress for Hepburn and Best Original Screenplay for Rose. Hepburn did not attend the ceremony. In fact, despite winning more Oscars than any other actor, she only ever went to the ceremony once in 1974 to present one. I really like that. Yeah, do, do we know why she didn't go mm. to the Oscars? She's just not into that shit. Fair enough. Spencer Tracy won a posthumous BAFTA and Hepburn was awarded the Best Actress BAFTA for a combination of films, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and The Lion in Winter, which actually happened a few times in the 1960s, but now seems a bit weird. Yeah. I guess it saves them competing against themselves, which sometimes happens these days. The fourth corner of that square of actors is Catherine Horton, who gets the shitty end of the stick here. Fucking hell yeah. <laughs> in that her role was the least substantial, and people suspected she only got it because Hepburn is her aunt. Or was her aunt. Not a lot she could do about the last one, although she did try to add a little backbone to the role of Joey, persuading Kramer to add a scene where she got some political views of her own. But that scene didn't make it to the final cut. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner grossed $56.7 million, which is a whole lot of cash in the 1960s. On its first showing on US television in 1971, it got an audience share of 44%. Mm. Reaction from reviewers was mixed, as you might imagine, and it continues to divide opinion, as you might imagine. 
A remake, and I put that in quotes, was made in 2005, starring Ashton Kutcher as a white man (laughs) wanting to marry into a black family. But its spiritual successor, I'm going to put that in quotes as well, is perhaps more likely Jordan Peele's Get Out, a film that also asked white liberal America if it was actually as liberal as it thought it was. Let's do the plot, because fun fact-filled though this section has been, I have been talking for ages... In San Francisco, Matt and Christina Drayton are surprised when their 23-year-old daughter, Joey, returns from holiday with a fiancé. He's a famous doctor, 14 years older than her, a widower, and she's only known him for 10 days. But none of those factors are quite as important as the fact that he is black. Enter his parents, Mary and John Prentice, who are also not happy, Tilly, the maid who is positively furious, and a Catholic priest, straight out of Hollywood casting 101, piss-poor Irish accent, tick, likes a drink, tick. All of which builds to a well-orks dinner in which the future of the couple is decided. Neither of you had seen this before. Had you heard of it before? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Should we start with just a bit of unadulterated love for Catherine Hepburn? I love her. Yeah. <laughs> She's so good. <laughs> She's so light. In a film that has a tendency towards speechifying, she carries it all really, really lightly. She's got a brilliant comic timing. I believed in her character. I just fucking love her. She's amazing. Yeah, she is. She's incredible. I mean, I had watched this before because I went to a stage when I was a teenager watching all Catherine Hepburn films. She is absolutely brilliant in everything that she ever does. Jen, do you agree? Jen's got a frown on. No, it's not a frown. Um, I don't have loads to say about her to be honest I haven't watched that many of her films I don't like as you know I don't really watch that many old films so I'm not that familiar with her stuff I know she's mega famous I know people love her I don't have loads to say about her two small Hepburn disappointments in this film and you know fair dues but no trousers and no big cat I mean I'm a big (laughs) fan of both yeah (laughs) she was almost always in trousers wasn't she yeah almost always this I actually know because of things people have said about her on like TV programmes about top films of whatever. Spencer Tracy, also great, I think. I don't know if you agree with that. Given that he was at death's door when he made this film, literally at death's door. He was so poorly, wasn't he? I read that he could only film for like a few hours a day and sometimes not at all. And they couldn't insure him because he was so poorly. Now, he'd been poorly a lot and always got insurance, but they said, this one, they just wouldn't insure him. So Hepburn and I think Kramer both held their wages as insurance for Spencer Tracy because they really wanted mm. him to do it. And he, I think he's cracking. It's got that whole, what I think of as the Jaws effect, but obviously was in play much before that of Joey's 23 and her parents are 97. And I think he <laughs> looks older because obviously he's poorly as well, but he's got... I think seven years on Hepburn and he would have been 45 if the ages stacked up when they had Joey, which obviously for that time, that era, is unlikely. But I do think he's great in that character. I do think you see he really gets across that whole someone having all of the values they think they have held so deeply questioned by it having a personal effect on them. Yeah, I think he's great in it. It's really tricky, isn't it? Because I think the points that he makes... The thing he's mostly concerned about is how hard their lives are going to be. Mm. It's not about his feelings. It's about how he sees the rest of the world feels. 
And that is a point backed up by John's dad, who says, at, at the time that they were filming this, what you're doing is illegal in however many states. 17, you know, it's going it to... was. Yes. Time, yeah. And he's like lived through the sort of, you know, Emmett Tills and whatever of the world. Mm. And he's seen the actual repercussions of interracial relationships and, 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 you know, and the really terrible, terrible things that did happen in the States. So, yeah. you know, I think that's the thing that I think it does so beautifully is that I don't think it is really a question of their morals so much as a question about like, do we take a stand against other people's morals? Is that what I want for you? Do I actually want you to be, you know, the test case? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because at the time this film was made, 0.4% of marriages in America were mixed race. Wow. That's really low. Isn't it? It did really Mm. well in the South, didn't it? Which they were surprised by. And the success of this film meant that they changed marketing tactics moving forward of films that dealt with issues of race. I think it's a film for white people. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. And yeah. so therefore, there will have been a lot of sympathetic people in the South. You know, we can't have that, that dangerous situation where we just lump everyone together in the North and everyone together in the South. Mm. And they will have gone to see it because they are sympathetic. It's interesting, isn't it? Because were someone I know to come back off holiday with a man they've met 10 days ago and says, I'm going to marry them. My reaction would be, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then this film does place this artificial time limit where this thing has to be decided by this evening because he's flying somewhere else. But there was criticism at the time that, apart from that, John is perfect. And this film tries too hard to make him perfect because if he wasn't, that would distract from the issue that he is black and mm. that that needed to be the key point of it. I don't know what you made of that. Well, it's kind of like that thing that people talk about now when like, when terms like, you know, hashtag black excellence or whatever get kind of like bandied around on the internet because then the idea is that like you have to be excellent. You have to actually be better than normal in order mm. to be sort of valued or accepted or whatever. So I think that's kind of the point, right, that you're making, is that there's no chance, like, if he wasn't perfect, there's no chance he would meet the criteria necessary. But I think the thing where it falls down, as you say, is that, like, they've known each other for ten fucking days. So, like, anyone reasonable is going to have objections to their union, regardless of anything else on the basis that they're getting married after 10 days. And that's before you look at, like, a pretty significant age gap and a quite fucking yeah. traumatic baggage that he's yeah, carrying. exactly that. I would also add to that the fact that he goes behind her back immediately to tell mm. her parents mm. that if they're not on board, this marriage isn't happening and doesn't tell her that. That is not yeah. the start of a good, equal relationship. And I find there's a lot of gender inequality in this film. Oh, yeah, yeah. But also, what is that? That's like a... Is that also a bid to kind of, like, make himself more perfect? Would he actually stand by that if they had said, look, mate, sorry, you seem nice and everything, but we're not for it? I think What's we're supposed to believe he would stand by it when he says it, but then towards the end of the film, he berates Matt, he berates Joey's dad 
Matt. He's Spencer Tracy. This, I don't know why they bother giving <laughs> him a different name. He, he berates Spencer Tracy for not having the guts to say it to his face. And you get the feeling that actually after that altercation with his dad, I say altercation, after he's appalling to his dad, that Prentice would just do whatever he wanted anyway, whatever he and you'd hope, whatever he and Joey wanted. I feel mm. like his attitude changes throughout the film. And he, he he feels like he will have the autonomy to do what they want rather than what their parents want. Mm. There's a class issue at, at play here because of yeah. that 0.4% of marriages that were interracial, I'm guessing what I've seen over here, working class people were more likely than posh people because it was harder for black people to reach those echelons of society. So that would be another barrier. So it's interesting that Joey's family are quite rich and, well, very rich by the look of it. Lovely artificial view of San Francisco, of the Golden <laughs> Gate Bridge going on in the background there. His dad, who is working class, can see more problems. Not only is he black, he is also working class and he can see more problems in this relationship because he's probably seen more interracial marriages than they have. I think that might just be a massive assumption on my well, part. Well, I think it's like quite an interesting sort of look at intersectionality in a way, isn't it? Because it's mm. like he's acceptable to them, I think, because he's middle class and he's perfect. He's moved up in the echelons of society and he is perfect and all right, like they hold these values dear and blah, 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 blah. But the reality is he probably wouldn't have had a fucking cat in hell's chance with Joey if he had been working class for a variety of different reasons. Probably wouldn't She's have been impressed on holiday in Hawaii. Well, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. I think it's quite an interesting look at intersectionality and the privileges that he, in turn, is afforded from the, you know, the the work that his dad has done and, and all of this stuff. But then that, like, chat between them at the end is quite interesting as well, where he's a bit like, I don't owe you shit. Like, you literally mm. brought me into the world. This is what you're supposed to do. I thought that was quite interesting as well. He's Agreed. horrible to his dad, though. I think he's really horrible to his dad. And I think it's maybe more shocking because it shows another side to this perfect, in inverted commas, man that we haven't seen. You know, there's a weird thing where Sidney Poitier just keeps laughing and pointing at people. I'm like, I don't know why you're laughing and mm. pointing here, but I think it's because he's supposed to be affable, right? And then you see mm. this about turn with his family, with his dad. And I, I thought that was quite shocking. I thought it was very sad. I mean, interestingly, though, the person who is most against this, most Tilly. stridently against this yeah. is Tilly. Because she is the one that is, you are getting above yourself, mm. young man. I don't know if you two found this. I'm sure I'm not on my own here. But I thought it was interesting, given that this film is 1960s America. It's written by a white man. It's, you know, it, I think it, like I said at the top, I think it's a film for white people. The people of colour in it come across as the most prejudiced because of Tilly's character in particular. And I think that's I think... interesting, isn't it? Like, oh, the liberals are more likely to be your white folk. And it kind of rankled a little bit with me. I don't know, because Spencer Tracy, after he has that car crash, really reverts to a kind of, why are there so many black people in my life today? Again, it's the, obviously it's written by a white guy, but in defence of, of the attitude that he puts forward, it's like, it's, I think Joey comes across as really fucking naive and a bit silly. And she she's almost like, the, well, I don't even see, you know, I don't even see colour. It's like, well, that's your privilege, isn't it? Whereas, like, the other people that are objecting, like his dad and Tilly, they are the people that have lived through 
watching these really, really traumatic things mm. happen. They are the people mm. with the most to lose or have seen the people with the most to lose lose, like, literally their lives. So maybe that is a realistic depiction of, of the strength of feeling that you would feel. It's almost like a game to to Joey at times. Like, the, she's so flippant about it. When it is, you know, objectively, it's, it is a big deal because there will be problems for them in their life. I'm not saying that's right. Obviously, it's not right. But that's the reality of it. She's wealthy, so she's probably never had a great deal of problems, as well as as being white. But she is also young and in love. I mean, she is really insubstantial as a character. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. I, say. I mean, Jen was very generous there. I just shouted, she's a fucking idiot at the, at the screen quite yeah. a lot. And it's not fair because I think there are snippets where you think, oh, she has got a bit about her, but they never developed that. Or indeed, they developed it and then cut it from the final cut, mm. uh, the final edit. What happens is it is still what the old white man says goes at the end. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what? I might as well ask the question now because I think the question of whether this is rated or dated is actually incredibly complicated. Very difficult to look at a film that has the white man make the decision at the end and not say it is dated. But at the same point, it is a photograph of views of the 1960s, essentially. Mm. So how could it not be rated? It is definitely dated, but I am so pleased this film exists and, and incredible that it came out at that time. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Like, It must have been seen as so provocative mm. at that time, right? So many people must have been like... Fucking hell, like, it it must have blown people's minds. It's absolutely dated in so many ways, but then in other ways, not really at all. A lot of those attitudes still exist. It's still alarmingly relevant, probably, in a lot of ways. I think it's exciting that this film existed in that time. I think it's exciting and important. I'm really glad I have seen it now, even though it felt like I was at philosophy class a few times. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and I think... Loads of it stands the test of time. And sadly, as Jen said, it's partly because some of it is still relevant. What made me chuckle the whole way through this is that he's getting on a plane at half past ten and you can just (laughs) rock up for a play (laughs) and get on it like it's a bus. When Joey says, she's like, oh, we're meeting your parents at half six, so we've got time for a drink at half five. And they go to that club. And I'm like, do you live at the airport? I don't understand the logistics of this. What time are you having dinner, guys? Bloody hell. Poor Tilly. Oh, yep. Tilly, can you just make another pie? Can you just order some more steaks? They're not shy about bossing Tilly around. See, that's the other thing that I think is really interesting is the power dynamic there. Mm. Mm. She's part of the because... family, Jen, that we order around at all times. Exactly, yeah. that we pay to do the shit that we can't be bothered to do. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's really interesting as well, and I'm sure that that isn't accidental. I'm sure that, that there's a reason why... She's cast there. Let's say it. Guess who's coming to dinner? Rated or dated? I think it's both. Dated and rated. I think it's rated, yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's undeniably dated. But if we're asking, like, did I think it was shit or not, then no, I didn't think it was shit. I thought it was rated. Excellent. So usually we tell you what we're watching next week, but there's been an <clears throat> admin error, and we don't know yet, <laughs> but keep an eye out on our Twitter, where our admin error, a.k.a. Jen Offord, will keep you posted about (laughs) what is next on our screens. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
standard issue for all women.